Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here with my co-host, Lyson Casey. Hello, everyone. And today we're doing our very first remote podcast. We're super excited about it. We're getting to speak to the VP of Origin Ventures and the Director of Platform at Origin Ventures. So thank you so much, Prashant Shukla and Devin Leishman, for being part of our podcast. We're so excited to get to speak to people in Chicago who are remote about um, the Toronto scene. Yeah, happy to be here and happy to chat with you guys. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. So let's start it off. Um, what are your roles at Origin Ventures and what is Origin Ventures? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. So this is uh, Prashant Shukla, VP here at Origin. Um, Origin is a seed and Series A fund based in Chicago and Salt Lake City. We invest across the U.S. and Canada, uh, write checks between 500000 and $5 million U.S., typically like to lead or co-lead rounds and be pretty actively involved with the companies. Um, I think I should let Devin introduce himself uh, and then I can do it. Sure. Uh, Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, I'm Devin Leishman. I've been at Origin about two and a half years at this point, came on summer of 2017. Uh, So my role, I'm sure we'll uh, dive deeper into later on, but uh, my title is Director of Platform. I started as Marketing and Community Manager here. Basically, my goal is to be the first line of defense for our portfolio companies. So after they're in our portfolio, after uh, we've invested, you know, the partners are, of course, still actively involved, but they simply don't have the bandwidth to actually focus on the day-to-day operations of every company in our portfolio. I mean, even now we have maybe 35 active companies. Uh, that's already true. And as we continue to grow, that only gets more and more true. So my goal in my entire role is, let me see how deep I can get into the operations of the portfolio companies. If I can triage some of the problems they're having, if they have obstacles to growth, uh, if they need an intro to a mentor or some industry data, uh, any kind of resources, again, super broad, but I just want to be the first email, the first call they make uh, if they ever have a question. That's great. It sounds like then you offer like a lot of opportunities to the companies within your portfolio. How do you go about selecting those companies? Yeah, good, great question. So as I mentioned, you know, we do seed in Series A and the business models that we gravitate towards or focus on are software and marketplaces, both B2B and B2C. So it's fairly, it's fairly broad, but we tend to stay away from heavy healthcare investing or fintech investing, but pretty much any early stage software company or digital marketplace is within our wheelhouse. And I think there's a, there's a reason why we chose those business models. You know, our, our entire team are all ex-operators and or engineers, and we've built companies. That experience has been mostly at software companies and marketplaces. We were also the first investors in Grubhub, which went public in 2014 and was one of the first companies, if not the first company, in the wave of kind of food delivery. And now, of course, we see so many more companies in that space, including Uber and DoorDash and Postmates. But I think that experience with Grubhub uh, for seven years and leading the first two institutional rounds for the company allowed us to gain an appreciation for an experience with geographic rollout of marketplaces, providing value to both sides and, and really cracking the nut on network effects. And we, we try to apply that experience across the B2B and B2C marketplaces that we invest in today. 
Cool. Yeah, I heard you talk about the food delivery industry and how that's kind of like blown up, and there's so many companies doing that now. Uh, what industry do you see kind of that's going to be that in five years, where like the food, like the food delivery industry, not a lot of people knew about uh, kind of like optimizing that with technology, but now it's everywhere. What what kind of technology or what kind of business do you see next up to be super optimized by technology? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and I know Toronto and Chicago are both hubs for this, and it's related to food delivery, I think is logistics. So everything from, you know, massive freight marketplaces to the tracking and optimization of freight routes to last mile delivery for retail consumer goods. I think you're seeing a wave of investment, both by large companies like Amazon or Uber, as well as startups in everything across the supply chain related to to freight and logistics. And I think there's a reason for that. I mean, one, it's a huge market. Two, there's a lot of inefficiency. And three, as more and more brokers, stakeholders on all sides of the of the marketplace are comfortable with digital technology and di- digitization, the you know that the adoption of that technology is only going to get more and more rapid. So that's that's where we see a lot of opportunity. And I mentioned Chicago and Toronto as kind of logistics hubs because I think there is a fair amount of investment specifically in those geographies where we see companies focused on on those sectors. And do you feel like the democratization of AI technologies has impacted kind of like the really rapid transition in in these uh, industries? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I I think the, the better that you can harvest and analyze data and use that to learn better ways to optimize routes uh, or your supply chain, I think, of course, it's going to have downstream effects on consumers, on buyers, on sellers, on everybody. So I, I think that there probably isn't any industry that you could point to that isn't being affected by, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence and the use of data. So so I would have to say yes, I think, because if you think about the number of data points that an industry like logistics is throwing out, I mean, it is it's massive, the scale Right. I think maybe only healthcare has a bigger scale in terms of the number of data points being generated. So uh, for sure, I think those applications will make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Thank you. And um, you guys are based out of Chicago and you invest in a lot of American companies and some Canadian companies. What is the biggest difference in the VC scene um, between the Canada and the U.S. markets? Yeah. So I would say, you know, we in the U.S. here, we notice a difference. I think, between the coasts and let's call it between the coasts. So, you know, our hubs are Salt Lake City, where we have an office and a managing partner, and Chicago, uh, where we started, and, and, and it's our headquarters. We tend to see, I think, fewer, you know, crazy party rounds, fewer companies with crazy valuations, not as much kind of stuffing money into companies as we do in the coasts. And frankly, we, we like it that way. I mean, we like to find value and harness that value and work with entrepreneurs who share the mindset of, you know, really valuing the capital that they raise and not spending it on, you know, kombucha and retreats and things like that uh, for no reason. And I think actually in my experience over the last two years in the Toronto ecosystem, I think Toronto shares a lot of those traits and and you guys can tell me, you know, being locals, but I, I think there is kind of a shared DNA between the two cities and the sister cities in a sense versus, you know, New York, compared to Toronto or San Francisco compared to Chicago. So that's one of the things I would say. The the other I'd point to is, you know, the people, my interactions with 
whether it be entrepreneurs or the accelerator community or investors, other venture investors in Toronto. I think, you know, people are very down to earth, very nice. Maybe that's just Canadian. Um, <laughs> but it also, I think, is Midwest. I think, you know, we we take our interactions with people seriously. Most of the time, venture investors are saying no, uh, but we try to do it with empathy. And I think I, I see those interactions, at least with investors in Canada as well. I don't know if Devin has more to add. Yeah, no, I just I was just going to echo the, the last point Prashant made there. I mean, uh, it's as somebody who's a transplant uh, in the Midwest from the East Coast, you know, that was one of the things that really uh, drew me here. And I really liked it was was that sort of uh, familial sort of collaborative over competitive atmosphere, you know, even in such a cutthroat industry like venture capital or like startups and tech. Um, and I do think Prashant's right. I haven't spent as much time there as he has, but you know, it's, it's, I think it goes hand in hand with being a smaller ecosystem, being undercapitalized. We all recognize, Hey, if a city like Chicago, if a city like Toronto is going to break out and have some big winners, you know, sure. We may not personally all be a part of it, but what's good for the city is good for the individual investors and companies based in the city. Uh, so we really try to treat it, you know, sort of obviously we'd rather ourselves be on the cap table. But at the end of the day, you know, we'd rather have uh, a Chicago company taking money from a Chicago investor rather than a Chicago company taking money from a San Francisco investor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And no, for Toronto, uh, definitely, I personally, though very biased, think that the startup scene here is very exciting. What do you tell other VCs when you're investing in Toronto? Like what are kind of some of the benefits of Toronto companies that you're getting as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it kind of goes both ways, I would say. Like for investors in the U.S. investing in companies in Canada, you know, we're diversifying away from just U.S. Uh, companies or U.S. assets. Uh, we're also getting access to, you know, diverse entrepreneurs in the ecosystems like Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, uh, you know, Canada. One of the one of the great things about the country is the diversity across, um, you know, all different kinds of races, all different kinds of creeds. And I think, generally speaking, we like to invest in those kinds of companies because you know, diverse populations and diverse employee bases can lead to better companies and results, uh, financial results, which which ultimately is you know what we're judged on by the people um, who judge us. I think. You know, for folks in Canada, of course, Canada is a large economy. It's a globally connected ecosystem. But bringing on U.S. investors to the cap table can give them access to US, the U.S. market in a way that maybe it doesn't if they stay kind of all in the Canadian family. So I would say, you know, for U.S. investors where there's a lot of capital, it's impossible to deploy all of that in the U.S. and expect to get great returns. They have to look elsewhere. And where better to look than the ecosystem of Toronto and Canada? You know, I, I'll go back to your earlier question to point out, I think, one more similarity between Chicago and Toronto. Both, I think, are fairly balanced ecosystems. You know, if you think about New York, maybe you think about media or communication or finance being uh, really important to the New York economy or San Francisco. It might be, you know, tech. Chicago doesn't isn't number one in anything, but it's very, very good across the board, whether it be finance or logistics or food or tech, et cetera. And I think Toronto shares that in common. So it allows investors to get a very broad access to different kinds of companies, as opposed to focusing on only consumer or only media or only fintech, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. No, I agree with that. Cool. And, um, as investors, I'm sure you, you've seen kind of companies with uh, seed rounds in the millions, and it's 
a lot of a lot of people are saying that it's getting a little ridiculous. Do do kind of like the investment rounds really mean anything anymore, or is it just what somebody can get from an investor at the time? And uh, kind of like a follow-up question: uh, If my company is pre-revenue, how do I go about kind of valuating its worth correctly? Yeah, so I think on the on the first question, you know, whether you call around seed or A or B, that's that's kind of just legacy carryover from the way legal uh, legal nomenclature is put together. What really matters at the end of the day is you know how much capital you're raising, what the the valuation would be, what the implied valuation of the the total asset is, and what what you're doing with that money, right? And how much progress you're you're going to make, and how much progress you've made before raising that money. So when we look at companies, and sometimes this is actually one difference between you know Canada and the U.S. Sometimes a company raises a Series A in Canada that looks more like a seed round or a pre-seed round, frankly, in San Francisco. Um, and related to that, you know, we call it kind of the the currency discount, the Canadian discount, because when we when we talk to founders in Canada, we tend to get valuations in uh, dollars, but revenue figures in Canadian in Canadian dollars. So there's kind of a, a a little bit of a gaming that goes on. But generally speaking, I think you know valuations are lower in Canada, and I do think that you know money goes a little bit further there. I think entrepreneurs are a little more wary of of spending money quickly. Um, going back to the conversation we had about the coasts, I think that for a pre-revenue company. You know, I think Toronto actually has a great, for as far as I can tell, a great ecosystem of accelerators, incubators, angel investors who will mentor, invest in, introduce founders to uh, different helpful people. So from my experience, you know, there's a whole network and ecosystem set up to do that. In terms of evaluating what the company is worth, you know, one one instrument that we use here and, and it's used in Canada as well is, you know, raising money either on a convertible note or, or a safe or something like that, a structure where maybe the entrepreneur and investor either can't or don't want to deal with, you know, agreeing on a valuation now. So they just say, hey, why don't we punt on deciding on a valuation, but set some reasonable boundaries around eventually what the money an investor is giving could convert into. That way, you know, the founder is protected against giving away too much of their company. The investor is protected against not getting enough for, for their dollars or their capital. And it's kind of a win-win-win where they can work together without spending a bunch of time debating over how much an idea is worth, basically. Right. And that, that's one innovation that's that's happened in the venture ecosystem that I think is good to allow people to, to your question, you know, value something that doesn't really have any financials attached to it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice for both ends of, of it. And um so what do you think then, um, since both of you are the company overall, you handle the companies you invest in from origin to exit, as you say. So what does that look like for most of the companies you invest in? And how is that process of kind of nurturing a company along to their exit or IPO or whatever it is? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I wish that I had the answer to that question because I would be uh, much better at my job and much more successful uh, at bringing companies through. But I mean, it's, it's I, I'm kidding a bit, but you know, the, the crux of the issue is, you know, it, it's going to look different for different businesses. And there's just no way to control for every variable of, you know, oh, a business in this industry is going to need, you know, more guidance uh, in terms of getting their sales infrastructure set up versus, oh, a marketplace business really just needs uh, a strong team, get into different geos and let them run, for example, right? So the, those high level strategies are going to be really tough to apply across a diverse looking portfolio like ours, at least. Um 
So, you know, I try to focus on a few areas. Number one, uh, the first and most important thing is for me to understand and recognize that, you know, I'm not going to have the answer to any question that an entrepreneur brings me almost ever. I mean, sometimes I might get lucky, but at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is triage and figure out exactly what the obstacle that the entrepreneur is facing is. Uh, and then, you know, from there, it could be, hey, here's a blog post that answers exactly that question, or here's a bunch of industry data that's going to help ground you, or here's a connection to a mentor who solved that problem before. Here's the connection to uh, a potential biz dev opportunity that can bring in some revenue or potential partners, potential investors down the road, right? So, you know, it really it really does look different. And I, I promise I'm not trying to give a cop out there. <laughs> um, I can get into specifics as to what we do do for the whole portfolio. Um, so a big piece for that, at least from origin, is uh, community. So more and more VCs are doing this now um, than were maybe five or 10 years ago, or even when I started at origin uh in 2017. But once a year, we bring every CEO from every portfolio company together uh, for a CEO summit. Uh, it's a day-long event uh, filled with programming, with guest speakers, with networking opportunities. Uh, we try to group every CEO intelligently. So, okay, you guys are all trying to move up market and go from selling to SMB to enterprise is one example of a grouping that we could do. And the idea is, sure, it's useful in the moments uh, for the actual tactics and strategy knowledge at the game. But more so, we, we want CEO at company A, who maybe just raised a series A and is building a SaaS company in the Midwest, we want them to connect with the CEO of company B, who maybe just raised a series B and has built a SaaS company that started in the Midwest and now has an office in New York, right? We're trying to really build these pipelines and have founders be able to connect outside of just sort of the official origin summit. Um, and that's obviously online. Uh, we do have an online community for our portfolio. Uh, we send a newsletter about every six weeks or so. I'll just say, hey, here's all of the new resources I've, I've collected over the last two months or whatever. Uh, here are some potential candidates for open roles. Uh, here's some service providers that I can get you discounts for, all that stuff. I really just try to keep an active community because, um, again, you know, I'm still going to be the main connection point. I'm still going to be the catalyst for this community stuff happening. But we recognize, A, that's not scalable. There's only one of me. And B, if all I'm doing is triaging and kicking it over to a subject matter expert anyways, it's 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 better to kind of build up those pipelines uh, from the start. Yeah. And, you know, Devin, Devin selling himself short, you know, he's a big part of why a lot of our founders and CEOs uh, say that we're their first phone call or we're the MVPs of the cap table because we we try to be as helpful as possible. You know, no work is beneath us. We're happy to, you know, build a financial model or cap table to assist with a fundraise, make an introduction uh, for a junior role at a company, uh, really anything that that uh, can help out a company and, and give them leverage, the executive team leverage. I would also say, you know, at a at a high level, our job as early stage investors is to solve kind of a few problems related to maybe product market fit, go to market strategy, scaling a sales and marketing organization, especially for B2B software companies or, or B2B marketplaces as well. But then, you know, our next most important job, maybe our most important job is to help our companies graduate to the next layer, just like kids eventually graduate and go to college and get their own jobs. You know, we nurture relationships with downstream growth equity investors who invest at the series B, C rounds. And if it makes sense at that time for us to 
you know, help the founder raise that capital and then take a step back from the company, maybe step off the board. You know, we're happy to do that. We're not the kinds of investors that want to hang on to that power. We're happy to be helpful to any and all of our entrepreneurs, even if we're no longer on the board or even if we're no longer, you know, a majority uh, of the preferred invest in, uh, investors. So that, that's the way we view it. You know, we want to be as helpful as possible for as long as we can. And then we're happy to let pass the baton, so to speak, if there are other people who can take the company the distance. One example, though, I'll give is in, in Grubhub's example, which did go all the way to, to a public offering. Eventually, you know, we stepped off the board, but it wasn't for many years. And we still maintained very close relationships with the entrepreneurs uh, all the way through through that process. So, you know, that that's the model that we try to follow, whether our company companies exit to uh, a sale to a strategic or go public or sell to a private equity buyer or, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I love that. It sounds like you guys do a lot for the founders, especially in the early stages. You can't really be like a community where partnerships could come out of that or other advice. So it's great that you set that up um, as well. So given that your portfolio is so diverse, when someone submits a pitch deck for you, what are you looking for and what is attracting your attention? Good question. Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we won't do something that's heavy healthcare or fintech. So if it's something that has some regulatory exposure, uh, we'll typically stay away. And because we don't have expertise in the nuts and bolts of how some, you know, deep fintech businesses or health, health tech businesses are built, we stay away from those. But broadly speaking, I would say there's three elements that are that are important. One is, you know, who's who's running the company? Who's sending us the pitch? Why is that team the right team to be building the business that they're building. I mean, I mean, that's probably the most important. The next is, you know, do we think there's some defensible technology or moat or go-to-market strategy? What's unique about this company and this strategy? I think that's really important. And then, you know, proof of adoption or product market fit or sales is probably next. And the reason why I put that third is because, you know, there are a lot of people who can be a momentum investor. They can look at, oh, this revenue is going from X to Y to Z. So then maybe it'll grow beyond that and double again or double again. And so we'll invest and try to do that. I think that's more of a growth equity mindset, you know, series B, C, D, where you have real numbers. At the early stage, you know, a company may double from $100 to $200 or 100000 to 200000 That doesn't mean they're going to keep that up forever. It's a lot harder to keep doubling like that. What really matters is, you know, what is the proof that this is really being adopted? What's the proof that people really, really want your product? That sometimes could be user count, uh, could be revenue. It could just be a really robust pipeline. Uh, if it involves enterprise sales, that's moving rapidly through the pipeline. So it's, it's hard for me to give any one answer because it's you know unique to the company, the industry, the sector, and the type of product or service that they're selling. But we try to look for that element of, of adoption. And then, of course, the other two, the other two things I mentioned. Cool. And if if let's say if there's any startup founders out there listening and they would like to get in contact with you or other VCs in general, um, what would you say are the, uh, is the best way to do that? Is it is it just emailing uh, email them uh, like a cold email and, and, and see what happens? Is, is it the best thing to try and find mutual connections or what's the best way to make the initial connection with with investors? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, it's cold emailing is one of the ways that, you know, founders will get in touch. Typically, those have a low hit rate because 
as you can imagine, I'm sure your inboxes fill up a lot, so do ours. So we tend to get a lot of those and it's hard to kind of filter through because while I would love to go through every pitch deck that I get and then provide feedback, it just, there's not enough hours in the day to do that. So I think the second thing you mentioned, which is finding a mutual connection uh, to make a warm introduction is typically helpful. The reason why I said, unfortunately, is because, you know, the folks who are connected, you know, they already probably have a leg up. They already probably know some investors or other angel investors or entrepreneurs that can be helpful. And other folks who don't have those connections are kind of locked out. So, you know, we try to make sure that we keep an open mind and do look at cold pitches um, every now and then, or at least I try to quickly scan something that I receive. It, it is hard though. I think that one of the problems um, and if there's any entrepreneurs out there listening, maybe this is something they can solve. But the matchmaking process between early stage capital and entrepreneurs, especially underrepresented minority entrepreneurs, first time entrepreneurs, you know, that that matchmaking process, I think, is a bit broken. Because if you look at who receives venture dollars, especially at the early stage, it's typically people who already you know went to great schools and know all the investors or have access to it. And it's not people coming out of you know, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And so that's one thing that, that we struggle with. I think a lot of venture firms, even if they don't admit it, I think they struggle with it too. And I don't have all the answers, but I do think that, you know, we need to work on that as an industry. Um, and I know Devin has some stuff to add as well. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, this is maybe only applicable to, to Origin or a small team like Origin, but I'd say at, at the very least with us, um, if you're an entrepreneur and you know, we're in the wheelhouse, you know, it's a seed bet or it's an A bet for you guys. Um, you know, in general, again, the more junior a person on our side is, the more likely they are going to be able to take a real look. Um, so, you know, if I get an unsolicited pitch and it's directed to me, you know, there's there's a good chance I'm going to look at it. I'm going to scroll through. And then again, I have the knowledge to say, OK, let me kick this one to Prashant because he's involved with uh, 15.5, one of our software companies, for example, or oh, this one's good for Scott, our other VP. You know, he focuses a lot on the logistics and the trucking industry or whatever it is. Um, versus, you know, if if you're going to try to cold email um, a partner, to Prashant's point, the hit rate is going to be much lower. Even if you can get their eyes on it, they're going to kick it back down anyways. So again, at least for Origin, and my guess is this is probably applicable to other smaller firms, find a direct email. They're not that hard to find online. You know, it's Every firm has the info ad or the hello ad. If you can just email Devin at A, it comes directly to me. I know it's directly to me. B, I'm just more likely to have the bandwidth to look at it. Even though I'm not the one doing the appraisal, I can do the next step of this is a Prashant deck. This is a Scott deck. This is a no thank you. Yeah. And that, I, I would just add one more thing is, you know, we, we get a lot of these inbound pitches or, or cold emails and when it's clear that an entrepreneur has put real thought into, you know, why is Origin a right fit? Like, oh, I research you guys have done marketplaces. This is similar to some of your other companies. Um, and it's clear that someone has done their research. I am, and Devin, it's probably true as well, more likely to take a look at that because I know, hey, they've, they pre-qualified this for me. So I don't have to, you know, open a deck, down, download it, open it and find out it's like a deep health tech investment. I'm like, oh, this was a waste of my time. So I think, I think the cold email with a little bit of research can actually go um, a long way. But but I want to turn this back on you guys, because I know you have a lot of conversations with, know a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, what is what are the biggest struggles that entrepreneurs have in the Toronto or Canadian ecosystem? Is it 
you know, access to U.S. investors? Is it access to investors in general? What are the things and the questions that you get when you talk to founders and entrepreneurs? Yeah, so um, it is in general access to capital, especially if you are a female founder, co-founder. It seems that there's a bit of a gap there um, or any type of minority co-founder. Um, it seems like there's a gap. Um, capital, obviously running a company is capital intensive no matter where you're based out of, but Toronto, much like San Francisco, New York, Chicago, wages are a lot higher here. Cost of living expenses are a lot higher here. Having an office space is a lot more expensive here. Traveling to pitch competitions, having to fly out. Uh, things cost a lot of money here. So capital, um, access to capital is necessary. There are some companies like ClearBank that provide um, financing to companies and capital to companies. But for a lot of those, you need revenue. So when you're kind of a pre-revenue startup, I think there's a gap there. And we just spoke um, to an entrepreneur earlier today who was telling us about the gap between kind of angel investment and um, getting that like seed round so that there's not really any kind of bridge between those. So those seem to be the most consistent gap. Yeah, no, she, she was talking specifically about, about the, the gap between seed and series A and how a lot of companies will run our money before they've kind of proven enough from their seed to, to justify a series A. So that that's kind of uh, it's kind of a lot of what we're getting is is, is mainly as, as you guys were saying is that the access is not right. Like there's investors that want to give money and there's entrepreneurs that need money, but it, it's making those connections so everything fits just right is the most difficult part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the gap between seed and Series A it's, it's a really interesting point because you know two years ago when we were evaluating the Toronto ecosystem to spend more time there, that was one of the things that we actually noticed, and it's proven by the numbers. There is a fair amount of seed, early stage capital, like accelerators and incubators, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But then there's kind of a gap with the Series A where, you know, you want to raise 8, 10, 12, 15 million dollars. And that's where some U.S. investors were filling the gap. More Canadian funds were starting up to fill that gap. But I think there's still a fair amount of opportunity in Canada and the Toronto ecosystem for Series A investors. And that's why we love making trips there, talking to companies, raising Series A capital and find that the quality um, is, is as good as any other ecosystem where we spend time, whether it's San Francisco, Salt Lake, Chicago, Boston, New York, or, or anywhere else. Cool. And uh, I've, I've heard stories about uh, investors, mainly in Silicon Valley, that they talk about how they'll be having dinner and somebody will pitch, the, pitch them uh, about their company. Is there a wrong and a right place to pitch someone on your company? And what are some other general uh, tips that founders uh, should know about when pitching, uh, pitching their company? I have something quick and then I'll let Prashant go. So, I mean, I even though, again, deal sourcing is not officially part of my job description, that does happen. Um, I'll say if I'm at a work event, if I'm at a networking event or one of the Chicago award shows or something that you know is origin related, I'm always going to be more receptive than if somebody not this uh, has happened or I expect to, or if somebody, you know, cold IDs me as I'm uh, out walking to dinner or whatever. Um, you know, if it's work related, if there's going to be, you know, the, the expectation that I'll be networking, talking to other folks in this industry, then again, I'm roughly a hundred times more likely to be willing to have the conversation on the spot than in there give out a business card, say, hey, yeah, send me a deck, you know, no promises, but I'll kick it up the chain. Um, And I'd say, honestly, this is at least true at Origin. And I think around most of Chicago's early stage investors, I mean, 
we make efforts to go to those sorts of events for exactly that reason. Um, you know, we understand that being in person just has this sort of organic collisions, I suppose. When you meet somebody new, they give you the quick elevator pitch. Uh, you're more likely to say yes than if they put all that in an email. So I know that's true for me. I know that's true for Prashant and others here. Um, we try our best to go to those things. So I'd say if you're going to do it in person, that's the time. And um, let's talk a bit about the post-investment value um, that you guys provide to your uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, uh, I am happy to kind of speak speak broadly. I know one thing I do want to talk about specifics is it was interesting because, again, it wasn't something that was in the official job description when I joined. And platform in general is growing and is so broad that, you know, my role as director of platform could look completely different from another director of platform, even at a series A firm uh, who invests in similar sorts of companies, you know, it could be apples and oranges comparing our two jobs. So one thing that, again, I wasn't expecting to be a piece of my role, but has become a large one is actually talent. Um, the reason for this, uh, when I lay it out, is going to make sense, which is, you know, we write checks primarily series A, we do some seed, but for the most part, uh, we're series A investors. And, you know, when a company raises a series A, say they raise 10 million bucks, probably the majority of that capital is going to go towards adding headcounts, uh, paying salaries and adding people to their team. Um, so, you know, they're, for the most part, they're posting maybe 10, 15 open roles at once as soon as they raise that round. Um, you know, that said, there's still maybe 25, 30 people total. So they almost never have an in-house recruiter. Uh, and it doesn't always make sense to work with a third-party recruitment firm, especially, you know, if something is not necessarily a C-suite level role. So the partners and I quickly after I joined realized, hey, we have a real opportunity. If we can fill the top of the funnel with really strong candidates, uh, that's a huge value add to our portfolio companies. Because again, otherwise, what you get is you have CEOs and co-founders and COOs spending a huge chunk of their time not growing their business, but really interviewing candidates, trying to source candidates, going to job fairs, things like that. So, you know, that's that's, I think, one piece where mostly in Chicago at this point, because that's where, where my networks are. But that's one thing, at least that I didn't expect to be as big a piece of my role as it is. And it's great because, you know, I've been there. We've all searched for jobs before. And if you can have somebody who says, yeah. You know, we have seven or eight portfolio companies in Chicago. They're all in tech. Here's the ones who are looking for marketing people. I'm happy to send your resume around. You know, that's a huge help to the ecosystem, to the candidate. Uh, and then down the road, even if they don't land a gig with an origin company, they'll remember, oh, I talked to that guy at origin. He was helpful. Now two of my former colleagues are looking. Let me pass their resumes along. And then that way I can build my uh, supply side talent networks. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Outside of talent, I mentioned the community piece. Um, a lot of it's resources, honestly. Um, compensation data is a big one. Prashant mentioned, you know, sometimes we'll build uh, we'll build models for for employee option pools after uh, we invest in a round, and they say, hey, you know, here's the planned added headcount. We're trying to scope out what the fully diluted percent of equity should be for all these new hires. And then again, you know, for the company, this is the first time they're doing that unless you have a multiple time CEO, but even then, you know, they have two or three data points versus, you know, we have, as I said, probably 30, 35 active portfolio companies, most of whom have done that before. So we just have access to a larger amount of data and companies who have done it before, uh, whether it be again, carving up equity, hiring people, uh, compensation data, industry benchmarks, all this stuff I can draw from 
industry resources, our own network, my network, and really be able to say, okay, uh, Mrs. CEO, you just raised all this money. Here's my best guess at what the employee option pool should look like moving forward. Uh, and, uh, oh, I see you're going to hire a CMO. You know, here's a couple of resumes for you to look at. That's great. Yeah, it seems like you guys provide a lot for the companies in your portfolio and that connecting them is a huge part of that. So it's a cool offering that you guys have. Cool. Um, so one question, um, whether you're looking at uh, a pitch deck, uh, you're hearing a uh, actual uh, presentation, a pitch or any other resources you, you use to kind of research a company, what are some kind of red flags that right away will make you say this is not the right company for us, uh, eliminating of, other than, of course, they're not in your wheelhouse. And what are some things that really make you interested like about um, a certain company? Yeah, no, great questions. So I would say the things that will turn us off or sort of be disqualifying are if there's some sort of misrepresentation or kind of loose interpretations of data and companies are taking liberties, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you'll find a company say, oh, our revenue is X, Y, Z, or we have these many customers. Then you ask a follow-up question and it's like, no, 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 sorry, those, that would be our projected revenue if X, Y, Z or something. And th those kinds of situations, it's hard to you know, gain the trust of each other because what really is happening at the early stage, especially if you're evaluating a startup and the, the, the founders of the team are evaluating the investors, you know, it's, a, it's building trust with each other and seeing if you can work together. I mean, that's a lot of what the dances. And so if a founder or a management team is sort of not being transparent, not giving straight answers to questions, that can be a red flag and is and is typically not something we would pursue further. We don't mind if a company early on especially has had hiccups or bumps or struggles because if you didn't I would be surprised. But it's the companies that learn from them, pivot or overcome those hurdles. The ones that try to sweep those under the rug or not present them accurately, those are the ones that I'm afraid of. Because if you're doing that now, when you raise a bunch more money and you're running a much bigger business, you know what, what will you be sweeping under the rug or not you know, sharing transparently then? So I would say that's one red flag. I mean, there, there are probably others. Um, but I think the flip side of that is, you know, founders or founder uh, who know a lot about what the category that they're building in or the company that they're building, you know, we tend to really like it when an entrepreneur comes from the industry, maybe they worked, uh, you know, doing some logistics company uh, in some big logistics company before. Now they're starting a startup in that same space because they lived through some of the pains. We like that. And it doesn't need to be a direct experience like that. We like it. You know, if somebody has clearly done their research on the market and knows the landscape, knows the ecosystem, knows the trends, knows where the money and the value are. That's That I think is really important. And then going off what I was saying earlier about transparency, we like it when founders are really direct when we ask questions, uh, are honest about what they've learned or their mistakes or what's going well and what's not. I think those really stand out to us. Uh, a lot of pitches we get, people tend to obfuscate or not know much about their industry. And those are really hard to back because you know, there's a lot of people trying to start companies and a lot of people who could use capital. Um, and it's just really hard to deploy something against where the founder doesn't have, you know, a strong backing in what they're what they're trying to build. Mm -hmm, definitely. That makes sense. Well, thank you both so much. Was there anything that uh, we didn't ask you that you wish that we had before we get into our more fun questions? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I think we I think we covered uh, a fair amount, and you know, Devin's role and the the platform community at large, I think, has grown a lot in the last what five to seven years. Um, you know, I think it's become table stakes for venture capital firms to provide that support not just to their founders, but all the way through the employee base of their portfolio companies. And I think Devin has done a great job, and it's a big differentiator for us. Um, and I'm happy that we could share a little bit about, you know, what Origin looks for, the kind of businesses that we invest in, um, and our interest in Canada and Toronto specifically. You know, I think I hopefully that came through um, on the the our, our answers. It definitely did, and it's exciting to see um, U.S. investors that are so interested in Canada. Um, it's nice to just see more eyes on our country and on Toronto in general. I just want to jump off one thing Prashant mentioned there. So when when you do have a role like platform that is so broad, and I mentioned, oh, you could do talent, you could do biz dev, but you don't have to. What's really, really nice is having folks who have been in those shoes before, because for the most part, a platform person, especially at a series A firm, they're going to be a one person shop. It's not going to be a big team. Uh, and, you know, going along with that, that means you're going to have to figure some stuff out as you go. Uh, but I do just want to shout out uh, other platform pros who have done this before, who really kind of built the foundation that I was able to build our platform efforts on top of. Um, we do have a we have a community of platform people. It started as you know really just kind of East Coast and Midwest, then it grew to national, and now it's actually a global community. Um, and it's wild. When I joined Origin in 2017, I would say there there were probably at most maybe 200 people uh, in this in this platform group. And in the two years since then, it's just absolutely hockey sticked up. We have about 800 plus, maybe pushing 900 people in the global platform group right now. Uh, we have a website, we have a job board, we have a membership directory. Uh, platform pros, to Prashant's point, are becoming, you know, it's sort of a need to have across venture. And it's great because that allows people like me who maybe don't have the financial backing, but are super interested in startups, really passionate about helping entrepreneurs build a small company. It really gives us an access point. And then again, the community... Uh, is so great to be able to say, hey, has anybody run into problem XYZ? We'd love to catch somebody's thoughts. Yeah, it's great as a founder. It's uh, when you obviously, like you mentioned, uh, your investment team is spread across so many different companies. So it's nice to always have a community to go back to, people to rely on, people who've maybe done it before. And yeah, it's definitely beneficial. Cool. Awesome. Alrighty. So for our more consistent questions that we like to ask everyone, but we're going to throw in some Chicago stuff too. So um, have you both visited Toronto before? Yes. I have been there, yeah, probably five, four or five times in the last uh, year and a half. Yeah. yeah. He's been there more recently than me. I've probably been there twice in my life. So that's a big reason I wanted to pull Prashant in in the first place. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So um, what is your favorite thing that Chicago has that Toronto doesn't? And what's your favorite thing that Toronto has that Chicago doesn't? Huh. I mean, so for the second one, I would I would say um, an NBA champion. That's uh, that <laughs> a recent, a recent yes, NBA. Yes, champion. sorry, a recent NBA champion. I, yeah. yes. Prashant and I are both big NBA fans. Uh, I actually neither one of us is a Bulls fan. I'm a Celtics fan. He's a Lakers fan, which does lead to some intra office strife. But uh, <laughs> no, it's the uh, the Raptors streak last year was really fun to watch. It seemed like it was a great thing for the city. You know they have the shots of people watching on the big screen out in the square. That looks awesome. Would love to, you know, be around something like that for a sport that I follow really closely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because Chicago and Toronto are similar in so many ways. You know, they're both near bodies of water. 
you know, they, they share, as we talked about earlier, I think personalities, they share weather. So when we have bad weather, you guys are probably also having bad weather. One thing that I enjoy when I visit Toronto from Chicago is the diversity, which I think I hinted at earlier. You know, it's, it's exciting to see all uh, the different races and all the exciting cuisines um, and restaurants that you guys have in Toronto. I really enjoy that. Uh, I go to a restaurant, Pai Thai, which is like a Northern Thai cuisine every time I visit, uh, sometimes multiple times, uh, which I love. <laughs> Uh, not that not that Chicago can't hold its own when it comes to food, but it's just a slightly different vibe, um, I think, for me. Cool. And when anybody that is visiting Chicago, what is one place you recommend that they must visit? Oh, I got a bunch. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this is a good when my parents are in town, we always try to do this. Uh, if it's nice out, the architecture tour um, on a boat is fantastic. I mean, so the river goes directly through the loop uh, and then branches north and south. So, you know, you can it's not super expensive. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a tour guide. They take you on the river and they point out specific buildings. They talk about specific architects. Like, I don't know anything about architecture, um, but I did after this tour. And it's, you know, super, super interesting. You're out in the sun. It's really nice. Um, I'd say that's a really good sort of first time in Chicago. Give you a feel for the city kind of activity. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with so many of the restaurants here, so I'm not going to bother yeah. listing them out. But there's a you can find lists on whatever Google or Eater or Yelp. Uh, but there's a lot of great food uh, in a lot of different neighborhoods here, so I would encourage people to check all of those out. In addition to you know bars or coffee shops, if that's your thing. Yeah, definitely, awesome. And for both of you, what was your very first job? I'm going to cheat a little bit and tell you too. So in college, uh, I actually owned on campus, uh, we owned the laundry and dry cleaning service for students. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of like an intro to entrepreneurship. This is how you evaluate a business. This is how you operate a business. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a profitable company. Uh, we did have to put in a bid, see how we valued it, win the bid, um, actually put forth the capital on the company. And then, uh, because again, as part of the school, as part of a program, you have to sell it by the time you graduate. So we got to see that from both ends. So uh, I was our chief sales officer, uh, which was nice. And then after that, my first, I guess, real job, uh, I was in sales for a startup out on the West Coast um, for about a year and a half. And great experience, awesome first job. It also taught me, you know, while I think I was successful at sales, marketing was really where I wanted to be, be able to have that sort of more creative, more strategic mindset. Um, but yeah, that was that was sort of how I helped get from, you know, owning Washi Wash to where I am now. Very cool. And really cool the school to run yeah. out of. Like <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah, my, my first job out of college was not as interesting as Devin's. It was in consulting, management consulting in San Francisco. Um, but I, I was a tutor um, in high school, so maybe that could count as my first job, although I don't think I got paid. So probably <laughs> not. Uh, but yeah, consulting consulting was my first job. Awesome. And for anyone out there who wants to do what you guys are doing, what are the first steps they should take? Yeah. So for platform, again, I already plugged it once, but vcplatform.com, you know, we, we have a blog on there. We have a directory. I think there's even a job board of open platform roles. Um, and again, we're a global community. So those are going to be uh, across the U.S. and Canada and, and around the world. Um, and then second, I mean, I'm always happy to chat with folks. Um, if you put my name in the podcast description, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I can't promise I'll respond to everyone directly, but I'm always happy to take uh, folks who want to learn more about platform. Again, I've, I've sort of backed into 
becoming an evangelist for generally my job in the platform community. Uh, so I'm always, always happy to talk to folks who want to, again, maybe get into venture and don't have the finance background. That's exactly me. That's how I got here. So always happy to help out now that I'm here. Uh, yeah, for, you know, for investment roles at venture firms, as you guys know, the community is fairly small. There's not that many jobs that open up. I will say that, you know, pursuing jobs at startups, early stage startups specifically, could be one path to breaking into venture. I mean, both Devin and I worked at early stage companies uh, before before joining VC. Um, I also think having some financial background can be helpful. But again, a lot of people I know that that have gotten into venture have done it in so many different ways. Some people went to grad school and then got into it. Some people kind of just moonlighted and worked on the side at VC firms or did some angel investing and then got in that way. Or some who were successful entrepreneurs or operators at startups themselves and then transferred over to venture. I will say that the one common thing across is an interest in technology and entrepreneurship in early stage businesses. I think if you have that and then apply it in whatever way works for you, whether it's angel investing, whether it's working with startups, uh, you know, while you're in school, whether it's actually going to a startup after school, whatever it may be, I think that will shine through when you are in front of maybe a firm or somebody who could connect you and be helpful to get you into, into the investing industry. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much. It was so fun to hear um, a perspective of a U.S. investment uh, firm on Canadian on the Canadian ecosystem and see your interest in Canadian companies out here. It's uh, it's always exciting to see that. So thank you. Yeah, you guys gave a lot of great actionable advice for everyone. So thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you for having us on. And as Devin mentioned, you know, any Canadian entrepreneurs out there who are building early stage companies in B2B software or marketplaces, we're happy to connect with them. You know, my email is Prashant at Origin Ventures. Devin's Devin at Origin Ventures. You can find our information online as well. And uh, thank you both for having us on. Uh, this was really fun. And, you know, we hope to spend more time in Toronto uh, in the next few years. We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until, Until next time. time.